Hi everyone, it's Nadia and Domenica ready and excited to jump right into our third episode. Today, we will be taking a look at the career evolution of a successful former U.S. representative, as well as learning about her take on the components in passing legislation. We will also reflect on the election results and where the future of the Republican Party goes from here. To start off, as many of you know, on December 14th, Joe Biden officially clutched the presidency after the Electoral College confirmed his victory, solidly rejecting Trump and many Republicans' attempts to undermine the election and democracy as a whole. Joe Biden's electoral win is a big deal for both parties involved, but there are many questions that people want answers to regarding political shifts. Plainly, this political race affirmed a politically large realignment. This isn't something new. According to Knox News, quote, voters have switched political allegiances before. Think Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan's wins or Al Gore's loss, end quote. Will Republicans abandon Donald Trump? That's so interesting. But what does that mean exactly? Have the supporters of the Republican Party changed for good? Has Trump changed it forever? I don't know, but I do know it's obvious that the two parties are more polarized and we have headed for a realignment. Plus, many senators are struggling with Trump's refusal to leave office, which has happened in the past, but not to this extent. It makes me wonder how the changing atmosphere in Congress affects legislation. That's a good point. Not only should we wonder what happens to the future Republican Party, but we should think about how shifts in party alignment affect the way our governing institutions actually function. In order to answer these questions, we will be interviewing our first ever Republican guest. In this episode, we'll be interviewing American attorney, lobbyist, and politician Barbara Comstock. She was elected to two terms in Congress, representing Virginia's 10th district, until she lost her term in 2018 to Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton. I'm excited to learn about the pressing political issues of our time and more, like the inner workings of Congress. Let's jump right in. Representative Comstock, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you. Now, you have a very extensive career. You've worked in law and lobbying firms and presidential campaigns, the Justice Department, and of course, both the Virginia House of Delegates and the U.S. House of Representatives. So speaking from a college student's perspective, I think a lot of us think that getting to one career is a straight line, a straight path. So I'm wondering if you can kind of explain your journey, um, give us a sense of how I guess you kind of navigated through these different positions. And when you started out as a lawyer, did you know you would enter politics? Okay, well, great. Well, uh, first of all, it's wonderful to be with you. And I think this is really a great project to be engaged in civic discussion and having women obviously involved and really uh, being much more fact oriented. So I really appreciate your mission. I, uh, when I was in college, I came down to Washington, D.C. I went to college in Vermont, Middlebury College, and I took a semester in Washington, an intern. And at that time, I was a Democrat. I interned for Senator Ted Kennedy. Now, um, I, I've actually had nice Kennedy connections involved, you know, over the years, because even though while I was there working for him, I realized when I would go to hearings, he was on the Judiciary Committee, he was on the Health Committee, I'd go to hearings and I realized I sort of agreed with the Republicans a little bit more on their philosophy. And I had a roommate who was a uh, Republican from a working class family in Maine. Everyone I had known who was a Republican at that point was like an oil company person, you know, from Texas at that time was sort of the, you know, the the oil guys. And then um, 
So I had never met somebody who was sort of a working class Republican, started uh, um, reading up on things. And so sort of I was a uh, Reagan Democrat that then morphed into a Reagan Republican. So that's sort of the short story of that. I always knew I wanted to be in politics as a staffer, not as an as a um, as an elected myself. That was not even in my sort of uh, dream house of things I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, work in Congress. And then I was older. My kids grown when my former boss, the congressman, asked, said, "Hey, we need somebody to run for the state house." And so it was very offhanded that I did it. And one of the reasons I started a young woman's leadership program for high school students, which is now housed at George Mason University here in Virginia, is because I realized once I was elected that but for some men saying to me, hey, you should run, um, my girlfriends, even my mom, who had always been my biggest advocate and push, nobody had said, hey, why don't you run for office? So I realized we needed to put that idea in young women's heads early to be leaders, not to be sort of the second fiddle or to be the support staff, but to think of themselves in, a, in whatever career it is, but to think of yourself as being the boss or being the leader or being the, the person who is in that top role. I usually, my two ways I chose whether to do something was that I really liked the people I was going to be working with and that I knew I would learn from them and that they were people of character. And then secondly, um, that I knew it was issues and things that I cared about and that I would like doing it. And that is still my, my two go-tos now when I'm deciding what to do. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, um, that was a answer, but <laughs> no, no, that was great. And you mentioned women's leadership and I'm kind of wondering, I mean, you were the first woman elected to the, uh, to serve Virginia's 10th congressional district. And so I'm kind of wondering if you felt either in Virginia or in the U S house, like any tensions of like being, you know, a woman and how that kind of affected your legislating. And did you actually experience any sexism, sexism of any sort? Oh, certainly. You know, I, I was fortunate that I did not, either when I was a staffer or um, a member myself, have I did not have anyone who ever assaulted me, did any of the terrible things that you've heard about. I was able to pass sec- legislation to deal with sexual harassment and uh, sexual assault and update our laws in Congress so they were more like they had been in the public sector for years. And I did have uh, people I knew, women I knew who had experienced both serious discrimination and assault. And so I sort of, I went to them. I also called women who had been in the public sphere talking about it. And we were able to update and make legislation um, that was really sort of state of the art. Uh, You know, I mean, it wasn't in Congress, it wasn't even against the rules to have a sexual relationship with a staffer. Um, I was the only woman in Virginia at at the time I was in Congress. And so when I'd go to a Virginia delegation meeting, it was with all guys. And there oftentimes were things said in those meetings where I couldn't even look over to another woman and kind of roll my eyes. Can you believe they said that? And so that was a learned process to realize, because when you're coming into a new job, and you're trying to figure out, okay, who gets it, who doesn't, how am I going to deal with things in a new environment? 
it's helpful to talk to people who have already been through that. So that's why I'm big on mentorship and, you know, talking to other women who've already gone through the job you've gone through. I think that's always something you want to do in whatever job you're in at the time or place that you're in, that you have a woman who's already sort of walked through that and gone through what you're going through. So instead of, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, I mean, I, certainly encourage everyone to feel comfortable to confront anything you deal with in that situation. But I think it's helpful to have women mentors to be guiding you through that process too. And, you know, you've actually been a pretty big champion of like, as you've said of, um, you know, of sexual harassment and you've also helped pass the Inspire. Yeah, yes, yes, anti. <laughs> um, and you've also helped pass the Inspire Women Act, um, which encouraged women to enter more STEM fields, which is amazing. Um, but you, at the same time, you also support defunding Planned Parenthood. And I'm wondering if you see these views as a contradiction or if you, you know, if they do align with your beliefs and if you can kind of explain uh, along that. Sure. Well, I, I am pro-life and I, I was a, a pro-life as a legislator, but I also think there's a lot of areas where you can find agreement. One of the things that I did support uh, was to have over-the-counter birth control available so that you could have, we could all work together on preventing pregnancy. And actually, ironically, you've probably seen a lot of the ads now that are on TV um, for Nurex, which is, you know, an online birth control, you know, you can get it, come to your home. Um, that wasn't even on the playing field just a few years ago. So when we were try- we had a group of us who were uh, pro-life and actually interesting, Planned Parenthood opposed that. When we wanted to do over-the-counter birth control and to be able to buy it, you know, in the store. Now, our bill was for adult women, um, you know, 18 and over. But, you know, we still wanted, you know, to have, you know, parents involved in underage, you know, medical things of any type. So Planned Parenthood as an institution, you know, they can take private money, just like, I mean, I've supported um, homes for unwed mothers and those, you know, private funding. I think the same thing with Planned Parenthood. There's different philosophies there. So they can get private funding. They can have, you know, people who support that model. But I think for public funding, it is better to find the common ground areas and you know, because of their role in abortion, that's why a lot of folks didn't want to be funding them, yet we wanted to find another way to prevent pregnancy. And I also found, you know, in those areas, whether it's helping women with mental health, helping women who are pregnant and need help, that oftentimes our women members, Democrat and Republican, like with the sexual harassment, could come together and find common ground. And that's why I think it's more important that we have more women in Congress in elected uh, positions, because on these issues where we all have had friends who've dealt with these challenges, we come from it, I think, in a more personal way. So even if we disagree on something like abortion or late-term abortion or the things where Congress actually has a role, we can find a lot of common ground where we want to help each other because we know, um, you know, we've, we've just we've been through it or our friends and family have been through it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now switching gears a little bit, I've kind of wonder, wondering what um, the differences are between, I guess, your experience in the Virginia House of Delegates and the U.S. House of Representatives. Do you feel that the in Virginia, you were kind of 
it kind of prepared you for the house or were they so, were they different in any way? Um, I was wondering if you could explain the differences on that. Well, state, state and local government is a great place for, you know, oftentimes everyone wants to start at the top and they want to like run for governor or for senator or, or even Congress. And I think whether you're volunteering as a staffer or, or an intern or, or something, state and local government, you can really learn a lot because it's much more localized to your community. And I now serve on two boards to get more women elected officials. And one of the things that we always look at is women who've already had state and local government experience or say they've been a prosecutor and are publicly active in their communities or they head up their local chamber or a local charity or they've run the PTA, some kind of community engagement involvement that already gives them a base that makes them really know their community well. And even with all the campaigns I had worked on, if I hadn't first been in a state office, it would have been harder. And that's why you see, I think at least a pretty healthy majority of the women who are in Congress now have already served in a state or local position or in the military or as um, prosecutors, they've had some kind of position like that. And the women who have had those positions are more successful in their races for Congress or Senate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems like you like know the ins and outs, I guess, of state and local government pretty well. And I'm wondering what are the best ways that uh, your constituents can communicate with you um, efficiently and effectively? Like from your experience, what channels have you seen um, be used uh, accurately and efficiently for your constituents to reach you? Well, since I know you all are very engaged in, in really getting information out to people, I've, you know, I, I think social media is great on that front because you can go directly to people and then they can also go directly to sources of information. Um, with, with all the work that you all are involved in, I, I, you probably in fact-checking things, you know, go directly to the sources of information, right? So you can go to, um, you know, the, the Library of Congress has information and you can look up the bills directly yourself, see who sponsored them, see what the bills are about. You can read Congressional Research Service papers that are sort of non-biased um, government officials who are experts, say, in tax policy, write those papers on taxes and you can see both the history and the back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. So I think that's very helpful. I've always liked C-SPAN because you can directly watch the debates. And so you hear both sides. One of the things that I liked about state government is what the way, since we only met for two months of the year, when we were in session, we actually had this hundred of us had to sit in our seats during any debate on a bill. And we had to listen to each other's discussions. So anybody could stand up and talk to a bill. So I would stand up and say, I've got a bill that I'm doing on telework. I did, I did telework bills in, when I was in um, the state house. And I would stand up and tell what my bill did. Then anybody could stand up and ask me a question about my bill. Anyone could stand up and oppose my bill or support my bill, attack my bill. And you had to have that live dialogue on the House floor. That really was much harder than in Congress where... When you do a bill, usually a lot of other things are going on. So when you're on the floor in Congress, you can watch in C-SPAN. When they pan the room, you can see not a lot of people are really there discussing. It's just the people 
who are in that committee. Now, I had worked as a staffer, so I knew that when I went into Congress that it was much different, but the staff is there working with you, um, and, and you only have a handful of people who are really discussing the bill and talking about it. Now, if it's a really big bill, say like, you know, a big tax bill, then there's a much longer debate and a lot of people come in. But usually everybody is only on the floor together when they come in to vote. And even then the voting is like 15 or 20 minutes in Congress. And so you come in, you vote. If you have to run back to a committee meeting, you're running back to a committee meeting or you have to run back to meet with constituents. So there's much less just sitting on the floor listening to debate. So when I was in Congress, I often would come home and watch the reruns of C-SPAN at night if I had missed the debate because I wanted to hear what both the Democrats and the Republicans said. And I think that's very important. No matter you know, what you feel about an issue, you know, even some of the most contentious issues as we've discussed here, it is always good for you to listen to the other side and understand what they think. So even if it doesn't change your mind, you might find some places where you agree on things. And so, okay, we're not gonna agree on everything, but I think we can agree on this part so that we can, I can change what my bill does or they, or we can just agree to compromise and we can find that, okay, we're not gonna, you know, we, we're gonna continue to disagree on some fundamentals, but we can find that area that overlaps where we agree that we actually think will make a difference. And most notably, you can get it passed. Because if you can't get a majority plus one for your idea, then you're just, you know, talking, which a lot of the members do. I mean, a lot of the people you see on TV the most are the ones who pass the fewest bills. <laughs> I'm proud that when I was in Congress, I was voted in my last term in Congress, one of the 10 most effective, they, they were 10 most effective Republicans. They did a list of top 10 Democrats, top 10 Republicans. It was a UVA Vanderbilt group that went through. And I think I always went to look at how can I agree on, how can we find some points of agreement and what are areas where we can kind of get things done and you know improve things then sometimes it's also how can i make a bill better that even though i'm not it's not my bill it's somebody else's bill but i can give them some ideas on it one of the areas i did that was in congress when we did the tax bill i well actually i had introduced a bill for a two thousand dollar child tax credit marco rubio had done the same in the senate and i really pushed to get that included in the big overall tax bill that we did so that's still in place now. I also wanted to make sure that we included um, the tax credits for childcare. And because they were doing a $2,000 child tax credit, they said, oh, well, we can take out the childcare credits. So we were able to keep that in place because I was able to go in and talk with them. And so that's still there too. So sometimes you just have to know how to, like when you have these big bills moving forward, how can you put in things and make them effective. Now, a lot of the times, people who might have good ideas, you're going to, and I'll pick on two people here because they're both on extremes, I think, and I think neither of them really are very effective legislators, but they're on TV all the time. Um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you see her, I don't think she's passed a bill yet. She likes to talk about a lot of things, you know, maybe she has some impact, but 
she doesn't, you know, if, you, if you're going to get 218 votes, you usually have to compromise. And she attacks a lot of people on her own side, which even when you disagree with them, I mean, and, and I've done, you know, I have had, you know, criticized the president. I didn't vote for Trump either in 16 or 20. So, you know, sometimes you have to make those choices too, but you try not to gratuitously attack your colleagues because you need 218 of them to join you in getting a bill passed. Um, on the other side, Matt Gates, who's a young Florida, very conservative guy who likes to be on TV a lot. Again, not somebody who works well with his colleagues, <laughs> who he's always attacking both on the right and the left. And so, uh, you know, getting things done means you have to know somebody you disagree with today, you may disagree, you may agree with tomorrow, and you have to find the people in Congress who actually get things done. So like if you're in Congress, you probably aren't, you might for publicity's sake, go try and sponsor a bill with AOC or Matt Gates. But if you wanna get something passed, you'll find some of the people who are probably a little quieter who get things done. Yeah, so it seems like when you boil it all down, um, the main strategy for passing a bill is compromise. Am I correct? Yes, well, good ideas and, and compromise. I mean, so actually on the sexual harassment bill, we didn't have to compromise at all on it because when we went, well, there was one little piece, but when we went through the checklist of what everybody wanted in the bill, Democrats, Republicans, victims of sexual harassment, we were able to put everything in the bill that we've asked for. Sometimes when your ideas are really good, you don't have to, you don't have to compromise at all, but you have to put together a coalition of people and figure out what's the coalition and combination of people that gets you to that, you know, 50 plus 1%, you know, to get the bill over the line. And so I think it's, and I think this is work in general, it's a lot about relationships and about ability to work well with other people. <laughs> now, sometimes that also means you've got to call people out too. I, I, I'm not saying you don't have to do that because if you, I've called out, sexual harassers in Congress, Democrats and my own Republicans. I've called out President Trump when I thought he was wrong on things. But while I was in Congress, he also signed uh, some of my bills. He signed that sexual harassment bill very quietly. He didn't have a big <laughs> ceremony, but he did sign it. So, you know, you don't always want to kick people in the teeth when they got to sign your bills. I had I worked under a Democrat and Republican governor the Democrat governor I worked under, I had subpoenaed in the past when I was in Congress <laughs> and worked against him on everything. But both of us kind of, when we had good ideas, he signed my bills, I, I supported his things. And even though we had had a history of being against each other pretty strongly, um, we had to learn to uh, work together when it suited our constituents. Yeah, and like, you know, Obviously, you've talked about um, the people attacking like AOC kind of attacking her own, um, you know, Democrats and our own party. Um, but I'm wondering how apparent the polarization was in the U.S. House once Trump was elected. Like, was there any significant shift in atmosphere? Um, did it affect the way that you legislated as opposed to when you worked um, under the Obama administration? Um, and did it kind of change the way you interacted with your colleagues, both Republican and also Democrat on the other side of the aisle? Well, we were still in the majority. So again, those relationships, right, right. you know, I had relationships with um, 
you know, even when President Trump came in, even though I had not supported him, I had, you know, publicly said I wouldn't support him. So that was, you know, when you have to publicly say you're not going to support president of your own party, that's not fun. Um, and you get attacked, you know, I get attacked by Democrats that it wasn't enough. I got attacked for Republicans for doing it. So it's not, a, but I, I felt in, in part because of my young women's leadership program, but a lot of the things that the president had said and done that I just didn't agree with. But, you know, he signed the tax bill that I was part of. He signed my bills. You know, once he was elected, you know, you have to, you know, and the same thing when I was in there with President Obama, one of the things that President Obama did and worked with us on, we had these um, uh, increasing money for uh, the National Institutes of Health and for cures, for cancer cures, for all these things. And we, actually, Congress put in more money, I think, than the president wanted. I mean, a lot of the issues that we deal with today are really not red or blue. They're kind of, you know, what moves us forward and what's better. And we're certainly seeing that with the pandemic that, um, you know, it's hitting, it, it doesn't hit you from a, you know, a party standpoint. We've all had people who've been victims from that. And so I think it's always important to, like when, since you all are very factual oriented, when you look at like, how do you solve a problem like um, COVID, <laughs> um, you, you know, unfortunately, I think it did get too politicized um, on both sides. And that that started before Trump. I mean, it's not, I mean, it certainly got worse um, because the reaction to him as well as the things he did were over the top in all ways. I mean, our country is very 50-50 right now, but, and, and it gets pulled to each side. And I think the country itself is more centrist I happen to think it's more center right. And, but right now, um, you know, you have president elect Biden who ran on the fact that he's worked with people. I mean, he's worked with Mitch McConnell. He's worked with a lot of these centers. He's worked with a lot of the uh, Republicans who are in office now. And uh, so he ran on that. And I think that's why he did better than a lot of the really far left Democrats who ran in some of these competitive seats and lost I mean, Susan Collins is a centrist. She won, I think, I don't, something like eight, 10 points more than Trump did. So a lot of people, like in 18, when I had my last election, a lot of people, you know, on election day were saying, hey, I like you, you did a good job, but I got to vote against Trump. I'm sending a message. <laughs> it's like, okay, I get it. Um, but this year it was people could actually go in and pull the lever against Trump and then they looked and said, but, you know, I want balance here. I don't really want a far left or a far right Congress. But there are people who are still in those far left and far right seats. So they're in there, too. But the balance of power is going to more be in the center. And I think that is, uh, and again, that's how our founders intended things to be, that you'd have that balance and that you'd have the balance between the House and the Senate. You'd have balance regionally. That's why we have two senators from each state and it's not just based on population, that's in the House. That's why we have the Electoral College, which I do support because I think you wanna have that balance overall and you don't wanna have radical lurching change that. Sometimes you have lurching change in a state house. You can see that in a state house, but we don't have it overall in the country. And that's by design. 
Yeah, I mean, and we also talk a lot about we've been talking about facts and fact checking. Um, and I mean, the facts are that Biden won. But at the same time, yes. there are 126. By 7 million votes. 7 yes. million. That's a lot more than, I mean, well, actually, Mitt Romney in 12 got 47.2% of the vote, which is more a higher percentage than Trump got either in 16 or 20. And Joe Biden has won this, those swing states by bigger margins, say, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, than Donald Trump won them by. So this, yeah, this, this, it's been insane what's gone on since election day and the crazy people who are involved in it. It's, it's very distressing, but I think the American people get it, that they, that he's being a sore loser um, and that um, he, uh, there's nothing else. He, the, it, it, and it, this is great because our, the court nominees, who I think have by and large been great nominees, I supported Amy Con- Coney Barrett. Look, the Supreme Court turned them down. They didn't. Nobody wanted to take that case. Um, conservative just judges that he put on the bench, who are like Federalist Society conservative judges that I supported, said, you know, this is nonsense, and really called these cases out in strong language. So the system has worked. Yeah, well, like my biggest question is, do the members of the GOP who have been backing Trump and these allegations of voter fraud and so on, like, do they actually believe that this is the case? Or, I mean, you worked with them. Maybe you, yeah. like, have some background of, of well, listen, are they there just doing is, this? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there is, um, there's always voter fraud, not voter fraud. There's always mistakes in elections. You know, right, somebody, right. and sometimes people, you know, People, you see a voter drive and someone says, hey, yeah, I want to sign up. I mean, you know, and, and they don't realize, oh, well, I, I'm not supposed to vote here. I'm supposed to vote somewhere else. So you can always have mistakes in voting. But that's why you have state systems in place. And the states all decide what our system is going to be. And each state has done that. Like, I supported voter ID. But we also, you know, after hearing stories from many of our African-American colleagues who talked about how maybe their grandparents or great-grandparents don't even have IDs, don't know when they were born. We had to have other methods of IDs. We we adapted to that from the information they gave us, and we found ways that we could have voting systems that we felt were fair. I think in Virginia, we I, I have a lot of confidence in our system. Being active and involved, having precinct workers, knowing your voter roles, knocking on people's doors, finding out who's there. That's how you find out who lives in an area is by an active political parties on both sides, really knowing who lives in their states, who lives in their congressional district, who lives in their state districts. And you work on that year round all the time. So then when the elections come, you don't, you don't come after an election, after the votes are already cast and try and throw out people's votes. That's been, so no, most people, no, I can tell most Republicans, except for a very few who are kooky, understand that Joe Biden won this election. That's why, you you know, they wanted to allow the process to go through. Now, unfortunately, the president has whipped up groups of people to think there's unfair things. I mean, this whole, I mean, even now, Fox News and Newsmax and other right-wing outlets are now saying, oh, that those, those stories, we didn't say that was true. They're, they're re- kind of retracting their own stories or modifying them because they understand those things weren't factual. But you have, unfortunately, people who believe them. I've had people email me from my statements to say, how can you say that? How can you say it? Because I know the 
a lot of the people who are involved in this. And I know the systems they put through and the election of experts that I trust. I, you know, I, I know these things that some of these really kooky theories that are coming out are really tinfoil hat nonsense that are not going to change tens and hundreds of thousands of votes. This is over. Um, and I think it's just every day the president does this, it makes him look more like a sore loser. But it, I think it should be, instead of being discouraged by it, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, as a Republican, I don't like it. But I focused on the fact that we want, Republicans want a lot more House seats than we expected. And we did it with women members by and large, or minority or members. So we created a much more diverse group of Republicans and a bigger majority than we thought we would have in the House. People like Susan Collins and Joni Ernst um, got through very contested, tough elections that they were supposed to lose. So I'm excited for new, both, you know, senior, not senior, because Susan Collins, I don't consider senior, but, you know, she is a very seasoned, competent, you know, centrist legislator who I'm excited will continue to be there. And I'm excited that we have those numbers there and that, the, and I really do feel like the system worked and that we did have a good election. I was part of a group called the National Council on Election Integrity, and it was bipartisan. Um, my firm, um, I work with uh, Tom Daschle, who was a former Democrat majority leader in the Senate. And so we're together in this group with dozens of other officials where we got together before the election to say, no matter what happens, whoever wins, we've got to support the system because we knew, I mean, if Donald Trump had won, you'd have a lot of crazy people saying things had been stolen too. So you'd have real extreme attacks. I don't know if it'd be this crazy as the president is, but having been through the Bush election and having people never gave up the ghost that that was somehow, they were robbed somehow, um, I think you would still have that on both sides, which is why we wanted to, on a bipartisan basis, say you have to accept results when elections are over. Usually people, even with very, because I always had very contested elections, yet people would call, be gracious, work afterwards. People who would oppose me would work with me and that kind of thing. The Inspire Act that you mentioned, that was one of the first bills that Donald Trump signed. And it was very, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to go in to even go to the bill signing, but I thought, you know, no, this is a new administration. He won, whether I like it or not, and he's going to sign my bill, so I should be there. And I had a Democrat um, who had worked against me for an opponent of mine come up and say, I can't believe you went to the White House. I said, for the signing of the Inspire Act to help women? You know, I said, I'm helping women so if I have to do that, you know, I mean, President Trump did sign the sexual harassment bill, too. Even if he did a lot of things I don't like, we passed that bill and he had to sign it. So I'm happy he signed it, whether or not, you know, I supported him and I'd be happy for whoever signed good legislation that I think should be passed, even when I don't like the person or care for their politics or anything else. So put those things behind you when you're governing and say, it's not about me. It's not about whether I like this person. It's about the issues I'm working on. And it's about my constituents and the American people and getting better legislation for them. So if I have to stand there with somebody I don't like to sign my bill to help women have more opportunities, 
yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm wondering kind of what you think about the future of the Republican Party. Like, do you think that Trump will continue to have power? Um, do you think that he will be like a likely nominee in 2024? And if so, how does the more moderate side of the conservative party like you and maybe Mitt Romney, how do they put up an ideal a candidate against him? Well, I don't think the Republican or the Democratic Party is going to be led by 70 something or 80 something, you know, however old you know, Biden would be white men in the future. You all are the future. So the future of both parties is to have more diverse voices and people in the process. So that's why when I worked on this year, since I didn't support the president, but I'm still a Republican, I would say I'm Republican and I'm Catholic. My church has problems. My party has problems. I'm staying Catholic and I'm staying Republican. I think it's like Mitt Romney said this week, I'm working from the inside. And I think instead of leaving, because I don't, I, Joe Biden's president, but there's a, I, I, a lot of things that I disagree with him on. I didn't, I did a write-in. I did not vote for him. So, uh, but now, you know, I want to, I'm, what I'm excited for the party, Republican party, I went out, I'm on two boards for women. I'm also on a board to elect state house officials. So I want to see more women in state houses, more uh, minorities. And I also, for our party, um, and get more diverse voices, get younger people engaged and involved, and the issues that they focus on. Like, I think education is going to be I always have thought it is. My mother's a teacher. My husband's a teacher. So education, I think, is the issue that is, you know, it's, it's how you, you know, bring opportunity to everybody. And now with COVID, with a whole generation of kids missing almost a year of school, how are we going to make that up? I think that's a big challenge that Republicans should deal with. I think the future is going to be um, problem-solving oriented, technologically friendly. I think if you're going to be hostile to technology, you're going to just get behind. And I think for my party, I want them to embrace that and use that to help those who need to be brought up uh, and, and to have more opportunity and not to get, because there are a lot of people, and that's what Trump tapped into, who feel left behind, who feel like they've been ignored. And that's where I think technology can plug them in, whether you're, you know, somebody who's been in the coal industry and now you've lost your job. Now telling them, hey, you can learn how to code and do whatever does not replace if you're 50 years old, that may not be the thing you can do and replace your coal job that made you 80 or $100,000. So I think we have to be sensitive to people who are in industries or they're older and they have families that maybe they can't take off time. Well, I think the idea of the future of the Republican Party being our generation is a very hopeful note to end on. So we'll end it there. And Representative Comstock, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Great. Wonderful to be with you. And congratulations on your mission and source information and all the great sources you have out there. And what technology can do to plug you into all of those and, and congratulations on, on doing that. And that, that's the future that, and that's how you battle a lot of the uh, nonsense that you see out there. So congrats. 
We know that sometimes what goes on behind the scenes in your local and state governments can be unclear, and we hope that this interview gave you all a better insight on what goes on in the otherwise confusing legislation process and strategies behind it at the state and federal levels. Now that you all know about the importance of members in Congress, a reminder on the best way for a constituent to reach out to a Congress member is by using social media. Our generation has a better understanding of this than others, so let's use it to our advantage. This doesn't just mean making Instagram infographics, but it means connecting with your representatives on these platforms. Using these tools, we the constituents can take action and work together to see that our voices have a platform on which to be heard. Speaking of working together, always remember that the key to passing legislation in addition to good ideas and a good argument is bipartisanship. As Congresswoman Comstock said, being a solid Republican or Democrat and refusing to reach across the aisle is not going to get your bills passed. What successfully gets bills passed is cooperation from both opposing parties. That's right. The purpose of government is to serve the people the best it can. A healthy, functioning government is what makes this possible. Cooperation doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice your ideals, but it means that finding common ground is the best place to start. And with those wise words, that ends our show. For you, Shine the Loop, I'm Domenica Fernando. And I'm Nadia Osman. See you in February.